0: Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Rap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art, and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Cooler Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Nicola Joseph is and has been a journalist, radio producer and presenter. She's worked um, at the ABC, at SBS. She's been involved across the community broadcasting sector since 78, working in various roles at 4ZZZ in Brisbane, to ser and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. She's also worked for the National Ethnic and Multicultural. Multicultural Broadcasters Council, Community Broadcasting Association, um, and more recently has been the CEO of the Community Media Training Organisation up in Sydney, the CMTO, um, and is currently undertaking a PhD in media at the University of New South Wales. So just a media genius, I would say. Nicola, thanks for joining me. (laughs)
1: not feeling much like a genius at the moment, you know. Hi, Erika. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of
0: course. Um, It's so funny because I've been thinking about this media diversity conversation for a long time and we've had some brief conversations in the past about it and you're the only person that I – could stomach having this conversation with because it is it is really a hard one to unpack and sometimes the discourse comes in waves and sometimes it's less than you know it's less than thoughtful and less than interesting so I want to start with how what did the mainstream media landscape look like in Australia when you started out Nicola
1: oh god it was so long ago um (coughs) excuse me when I started, you know, like I left school in 1976, so that kind of tells people how old I am. And I think that's kind of around the time that, in fact, Triple R started. Mm. Yeah. And, um, you know, ABC existed. Um, SBS Radio existed. I think TV was um, a plan, there was a plan for it, but it didn't really exist. And I went to one of the first. Journalism courses, university courses, um, which was in regional New South Wales Bathurst. It was a very elite kind of course. Um, there were very few students taken in, and it was primarily geared towards the reason it was kind of i guess admired by the industry was that because they really taught you um, mm. the the kind of um, i guess the form and the method. Of, of news reporting and current affairs reporting and so we were seen as being very employable cadets um, I have to say I was the only person of colour not just <laughs> doing journalism but on the whole campus I think there was one Italian um, girl on that campus mm-hmm. um, so that was you know in itself quite an amazing experience for me alarming and amazing um, coming from an Arabic-Lebanese background, quite traditional upbringing. Um, it was kind of the first time I ever really lived and and kind of played and worked with Anglo-Australians, white Australians. So, you know, it, it gave me a good sort of grounding, I think, for working in the media because, of course, when I graduated, you know, places like the ABC, even community radio stations mm-hmm. were really the places of, um, you know white men, the terrain of white men more than anyone else. I think women had a fairly successful push in getting on air at places like the ABC through the Coming Out show, which I was lucky enough to actually work for that show as the executive producer and presenter at Radio National for quite a few years, and that's when I entered the ABC. The ABC, I think, you know... In some ways, I would say, you know, I'm saying that it was completely white, but then we kind of hit the end of the 70s and the 80s and we saw a kind of wave in much the same way as we see the waves today of, you know, indigenous Mm. media coming through places like the ABC and SBS and also, I mean, SBS in itself, to be old enough to remember what the early heady days of SBS were... Something that I think propels me because you know you understand what it could be like yeah. if it was better than what we 've got now s b s was one of those places where everyone came from around the world. It was just the most incredible. Place to work in and you could walk in and have a story idea and someone would go, yep, let's do it, and you'd be sent out with a camera crew and, you know, you'd be making stories not really having any idea what you were doing. But, you know, it's a really interesting kind of place to work and to be part of. I was quite young still, but, you know, one of those things in our history that I think it's worth kind of revisiting to actually sort of remind ourselves that we're not kind of struggling for something we haven't got. We've actually had it at one stage and lost it.
0: And that's part of the conversation that I think is missing, right? Because I think that people, we're doing this kind of reimagining of what could possibly, what the future could possibly look like. And I've had conversations with you specifically about SBS and, and this experience, and it's clear that we've regressed, right? We've only, we, it's only gotten worse in the, last, in the last however many years. And so what, what does it look like to go back?
1: What does it look like? Yeah. We have to be careful about the language we use because the work I'm doing on the thesis is really about sound and audio Mm. production because my background is radio. And one of the things about talking about race and racism is we we very much talk about it in visuals and so we see like you know the diversity um activists the media diversity activists talking about faces on screens mm. you know and we we it's about like what things look like i have to see myself in something like mm-hmm. i want to grow up you know i want to see my kids, my kids want to see themselves as different positive roles on TV um, in order to be able to imagine what they could be. And we don't really kind of pay much attention to how sound is racialized, if I could put it like that, but, you know, how it's also about what people say. So, you know, I think you and I have talked about this before, that, you know, um, when we talk about what would it look like, it's also really about what would it sound like. And if we go back to places like early SBS, which was quite groundbreaking, in fact, um, you know, we think about... And people who... Listeners here that are old enough will remember, okay, it did look different. There were people, you know... with boofy hair styles doing the kind of what's coming up on SBS tonight. But what was really important about that was that often they had accents other than an Australian or English, British, I'll say British because, you know, sometimes Scottish and Irish is okay as well. But, you know, they had accents other than those traditional media accents. And, um, you know, it really kind of opens your ears up, not your eyes, to how race works, because, you know, just even trying to kind of find someone with an accent other than a British or Australian accent, um, and American, of course, if we're talking about television, you know, across all of our media um, that we listen to, is actually, it's almost impossible. Yeah. Defined. And then there's also the thing about what was said. Like, what did we call people? So, you know, I can remember being really excited by the fact that SBS News refused in the early days to call Palestinians terrorists, which mm-hmm. was just unheard of. Like, you know, um, that it really tried to kind of, like, think about the labels that are just put on people in a really, you know, kind of routine way in the media, like I work in a newsroom, you know, I'm writing a story about something, it might be the first time I'm writing that story. What do I do? I usually go and look at what other stories right. our organization has written about yeah. it and without even thinking about it, I'm starting to adopt the language of the institution. So, you know, it's not just about what what would it look like, but it's also what would it sound like mm-hmm. and I think, you know, just those two things alone start to open our ears to how we listen to sound and how sound is racialised.
0: Yeah, and what we look like, what we sound like, and then, of course, who is... Coming up with these stories, who is behind the scenes producing this work, which is really the is a very very important role within those kind of media organisations. Of course, within community radio, oftentimes you produce your own show, um, or you've got a producer and you work kind of hand in hand. But you essentially write your own questions, or you know you're you're generally as a presenter paneling and doing your own stuff for a lot of your show. But oftentimes within you know the ABC, SBS, other other media, other commercial radio. Or commercial television, or whatever there I, there are a team of people. There is often a group of people who are deciding what's happening, um, who we're going to speak to, how we're going to organise it, and the importance of that work to also be engaged with through the lens of you know not you know what's the opposite of whiteness um, is is important.
1: Yeah, and interrogating kind of those processes mm-hmm. is really. Um you know, kind of fundamental to the work that we're doing because, you know, like a person of colour can go and sit on, you know, the panel like um, Waleed does Mm -hmm. and one has to ask the question like how much of himself does he bring to that? Now, I think Waleed probably does it quite well in that he's able to bring some nuance to the discussion At times, and he uses humour a lot to do that, which is kind of nice. But, you know, generally speaking, it's probably not, you know, a large part of what happens in terms of what he's doing. Like, Mm. probably the majority of what he's doing is what any one of the other white people on the panel would do, which is introduce a story. And we have methods of doing that, and we have ways of writing it um, that are quite formulated, formulaic, you know, in in the media. And all of those formulas, the forms that we use, um, have these histories that, you know, have all these kind of values embedded in them. Like, you know, it might sound stupid, but like one of the things that I kind of start when I started to think about sound and race and, and how we've come to listen to to difference, if I can say it mm. like that. Um, in Australia, for example, because I think in Australia we're quite monolingual, lingual. we're um, intolerant um, in terms of listening to our media, of listening to people with accents other than familiar ones. Yeah. Um, you know, and that we've become like that. And when we sort of start to think about that, we go, oh, shit, you know, my ears are racist, mm. you know what I mean? So Absolutely. Like, um you know, one of the things that's really interesting is, like, with any, a lot of Indigenous documentaries, for example, they usually start with sounds of landscape, like birds or water or something like that. And this could be even with, you know, a, a documentary that's about someone that's living in a city and is a doctor. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it, it's just kind of really interesting in, in what that kind of brings up in our kind of bank of memories mm. and, and information in our brains like which is what it's it's there to do so for example if I go to the Middle East um, as a journalist I record the call to prayer yes. you know and, and so the thing will start with the call to prayer you know and yeah. it's like what does what is that doing in a listener's mind like what other things is that bringing up and associations is it bringing up um, that? Don't really kind of like lend themselves to presenting kind of people other people that we're unfamiliar with others um as kind of nuanced human beings with all the kind of you know idiosyncrasies that Absolutely. that we have you Absolutely. know what I mean like, yeah. people get a fright or oh, are quite shocked when I tell them I go to when I go home to Lebanon, to Beirut, you know, and how I hang in wine bars and <laughs> party all night, um, they're like surprised.
0: You just wouldn't have a sense that of that. actually just... happening
1: in the Middle East. Exactly. But it is, you know.
0: It's amazing because, you know, as we know, audio is probably, to me personally, the most intimate um, of the mediums because, of course, you're essentially sitting in a room or in the car or whatever with another person who you're eavesdropping on a conversation (laughs) between them and another person or they're playing you music and it's quite an intimate art form you can do lots of different stuff while listening to audio and I think that sometimes we as you said we don't recognize the ways in which we kind of we we start all of our big audio pieces, but also the way we introduced people and who they are. I think the point about accents is really important because I remember when I worked in mainstream media, there was often a little bit of anxiety if you bring in a guest who doesn't have your, you know, Australian, British, and like you said, possibly Scottish, Irish, American, Canadian accent um, from your executive producer or from a presenter who's quite anxious about the fact that maybe listeners won't understand what this person is saying. And I think that, when we project those anxieties on people, we assume that the listeners are all those who only hear um, the accents of, you know, you know, Australian accents, British accents, Canadian, American, whatever, Irish, Scottish accents. And we assume that our listeners aren't actually people who hear a myriad of different English accent or accents of the English language. Um, and that already kind of puts us in a, in a particular position
1: yeah, absolutely, and you know, it, it's. I think listening is, you know, it's something that kind of, as radio producers, we might think about. But I don't know how much kind of conscious thought we mm. give to it about how what what am I making and how am I. How, how am I changing the way or influencing the way we have come to listen as a nation? Like, it's who we listen to, but mm-hmm. it's also how we listen how, yeah. to people and how, you know, someone with an um, Arabic accent, for example, we might listen to them and think that somehow they're less intelligent mm-hmm. than us, you know? Um, or we might um, listen to... You know, even listening to music, I think, is a really interesting thing. So if we think about how we as Aussies, and in my case, you know, not black, non-black Aussies, listen to Mm hip-hop, you know, it really starts to kind of, you know, we understand that there's this kind of library of references that we have and that those references come from lots of different places um, and we call on them, but we call on them subconsciously. So um, you know that's where the danger is. We're not really kind of conscious that we're doing that to build the picture in our head, um, listening to radio.
0: Yeah. Can I say something
1: too about diversity because I hate
0: that word. I was know? just gonna I was literally just about to say that. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> I was just about to I completely agree with you. And I think that, you know, when we talk about this kind of media diversity discourse that we have, and it kind of comes in waves every couple of years, the realisation that everyone who works in the media in Australia, which is untrue, because there are a lot of people of colour and Indigenous people who, who work in the media, but a majority of the people who work and make decisions are white. It kind of comes in waves, this diversity discourse. But clearly, it's more than just having lots of people working in these spaces. That's of the first step but the way that the discourse is kind of being represented is that it's the last step and actually there's no way that that could be the last step
1: that it's a destination yeah and it's an interesting assumption you know and and what's interesting in the research is there's this great guy that writes about television um in america in the u.s herman gray fantastic um black writer and and um critic and um he's the one that kind of first kind of made me start to think about, you know, where did this come from, this idea that the more people of colour and Indigenous people we employ, the more diverse our organisation or the more diverse our content output Mm -hmm. will be. Um, And, in fact, you know, in America, it's kind of traced back to a commission called the Kerner Commission, which happened soon after riots in the 1960s, uprisings, I should say, not riots, (laughs) um, which, you know, kind of echoes with what's happening today. And um, in Australia, I think, you know, it goes back to um, the Royal Commission mm-hmm. um, into deaths in custody, and in fact, um, another qu- inquiry in, on racism in the media that happened in the early 90s, um, where, like for example, the Royal Commission talks about the lack of diversity in newsrooms. The Royal Commission talks about, you know, independent and indigenous media um, as being important, and of course it is, but the reality is that there's actually been no research on on done on the correlation between the people you employ and their program their content outputs, Mm -hmm. like the effect it has on the organization's content outputs. Now, I'm not suggesting here that we should stop that as a strategy and I agree entirely that the fact that it's seen as an end is just incredibly unfair and and is doomed for failure. It's mm. unfair because it puts the onus on people of colour and Indigenous people in those organisations to force the change. And, you know, it really is forcing a change. Yeah. It's not that, as if the people that are in the organisation and the way the institution is set up in its history is willing to change. It's actually not willing to change. Mm. And, you know, we refer here to... Um, the distinguished professor you had on um, a few weeks ago, <sighs> Aileen Morton-Robinson, talking about the white possessive, which yeah. is really important when it, it comes to media. You know, it's that the white possessive doctrine really informs a lot of how media works. But, you know, this... There's so much more to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so much more complicated. And, you know, in the research that I've done, the work around, like, just what is the experience of people going into organizations? Mm -hmm. um, It's just, like, horrible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we saw this come out in, you know, journalists' Me Too movement, uh, Me Too moment, I'd Mm -hmm. say, when Black Lives Matter and and the Me Too um, moment kind of joined, and we saw Ameri- African-American journalists walking out of places like the New York Times yeah. and lots of statements, NPR. and then it started to happen here. Mm. Cody Bedford very bravely tweeted mm-hmm. about her experience at SBS, but it didn't really go much further than that. It very, I think, slipped back into, we need more people yeah. on camera and we need more you know it was about employment and and parity
0: parity I mean how
1: I don't even know how you start to think about parity and you're asking for it right does parity mean that it you know any Asian will do or do we have to actually drill down to employing people according to Vietnamese, Chinese, Hong Kong Chinese. Like, you know, when we're talking about parity, we're talking about trying to reflect the makeup of the population. It's a pretty complicated process, right? And um, so, you know, I think while I totally support the idea that people should be employed and Mm -hmm. that there should be no racism or racist kind of... um, Modes of recruiting people um, and or stopping them from being employed, I think, you know, I find it much more useful to talk about media justice mm-hmm. um, rather than diversity because really at the end of the day, what we want is for the content to change and we want the unfair reporting to disappear. We want the, you know, exotification, the kind of, you know, separation of... Um, you know, having that kind of Western view of everything outside of the West, we want that to change. We want to become more nuanced in our understanding of one another and of the world. Um, and so, like, media justice kind of, I think, presents us with the possibility of, really, are we looking for parody or are we looking for kind of communities that are really maligned in the media and, and really concentrating on employing people from those demographics mm-hmm. and really discussing how we how we 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 kind of I think Eileen Aileen, Aileen Morton Robinson talks about rattling the white picket fence. Yeah. Like how do we kind of disrupt disrupt absolutely what's existing there? How do we challenge it and and actually have some effect on it?
0: And that's the thing because the media, you know, this is conversations within media and communications um, studies and, you know, cultural studies and whatever, but the real impact of... um, the media on society and society on the media and really considering the kind of real-life impacts of um, media representation and misrepresentation and thinking about, you know, even just in Victoria, and this is something, Nicola, that you know I'm sure you know about, but the fact that, you know, the African gang rhetoric has directly, and, you know, I'm not a researcher and I can't I can't say anything um, in terms of that, but for me, from what I've seen, I can see that it has directly... Impacted the representation of young African boys in Victoria, and suddenly, in the last few years, since this rhetoric in the media, we know that there aren't gangs. Um, The youth justice system in Victoria is filling up slowly and continues to fill up with young African boys. And there is a very kind of direct correlation between this representation, what that means within the justice system, and then what that impact is on these individuals who end up locked up. And then we see the revolving door of the prison system, and then we see what that means when it comes to adult incarceration. Like, And we kind of see these direct impacts. I don't imagine, for me personally, as someone of the African community, that having um, some more diverse media representation of people who aren't, you know, from that community or Indigenous, you know, people whose experiences within the prison system are really profound and, and really... Um, multi-layered, I don't find that just anyone could do these communities justice because we know that anti-blackness is something that people of of colour experience as well um, and something that they project as well. So that's kind of also part of the reason why my brain doesn't quite, um, you know, I feel excited by media diversity if we have more of that, but I also feel like possibly the type of changes that I'm looking for might not actually come out of this outcome of having just more people in the media.
1: Yeah, and, like, I think that, you know, the fact that kind of so much of recent history, and when I say recent history, I'm talking, like, 70s, 80s, Mm. 90s, has just disappeared. Um, I think kind of we're not becoming smarter at how to kind of deal with what is, in fact, a moving target, because the other thing is the white possessive will, you know, tell us that, um, you know, if we kind of, get somewhere with this, like if we actually start making inroads, then the white possessive changes to adjust to that and, and readjusts. And, you know, when we kind of see the attacks on the ABC from the right, Mm -hmm. um, and we have to look at how that op- how that functions to actually silence criticism of the ABC, you know, and and this is something that's been going on for a, a really long time. That's not recent, but the the definitely the um, the attacks from the right and also a, a kind of government that is quite hostile um, puts. changes the situation again in terms of how the battle is fought um but like also i think kind of you know we're on a community radio station now triple r you know my heart and soul really is in community radio a lot because it's the one place where i have been able to be myself Mm -hmm. but i don't want to paint a pretty picture of that either because i think we're also at the stage Um, in the development of the sector where we should be looking at what kind of diversity do we practice. Mm -hmm. You know, because... I believe that what I've seen, you know, you asked me at the beginning how, what was it like when you were there, and I talked, in the, you know, when I first started, I talked about the S- SBS, and I talked about the ABC, which were much more progressive than they are today, I should say. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I want to point out that when I was at Radio National at ABC, we did a month's focus on Islam. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think they would do that today and get away with it. You know, I think there would be a lot of... Um, uh, a kind of attack on them from the right for having a focus on Islam. Um, having said that, you know, the kind of racism that I was subjected to at the organization during that time was just abhorrent, you know. So that hasn't changed. But, um, and that was from colleagues, but, you know, the the fact that, that Radio National could do that back then um, and be so progressive, well, I can say the same thing about community radio, I think we have become as a sector much more conservative and I think part of that is the increase in the number of um, Christian stations Mm -hmm. that um, have gotten licenses during the Howard period and um, but it's more than that, too, because I think that there's trends in our sector where in regional areas, commercial stations have closed and, you know, or people have retired that it's not unusual to find, you know, older white males, usually who've come from the industry, who have come to community radio to fix it up yeah, and, you know, to make it better. And so, you know, we're now a very mixed sector. Um, it, it's not... You can't see it as being progressive in the way that it was at the beginning, um, where it was really about trying to change the media landscape in Australia. And, I mean, of course, there's some fantastic pockets of it. Um, 3CR in Melbourne is a really important station. Yeah. And my home station, you know, my my kind of hood is <laughs> Radio Skid Row in Sydney. And, um, you know, those stations have... Kind of, I guess, adhere to it. Triple R um, and PBS are stations where you know there's been a really strong commitment to Australian culture and music. Such an important role to be played for Triple Z as well in Brisbane. But you know, for Triple Z was a, an extremely radical station. In, in the 70s, in a hostile environment of a conservative government under Joe bielke Peterson, and took enormous risks in a way that I don't think we would today because of the regulations, because of the wider political context of what would happen, um, you know, to to people who speak out um, in ways that, you know, in the 80s was fine, but now we're here we are in 2020 and. And you can't, I mean, you can't mention the Anzacs without getting your head, yeah, head chopped off. Absolutely. And yet, you know, there was, and, you know, the white possessive once again comes up there with the Anzacs, but, you know, there was, you know, kind of demonstrations against war during during Vietnam, because if we look at who has had their heads chopped off for talking about the Anzacs, usually it's in the context of protesting against the idea of war Mm. and glorifying war it's not about being disrespectful for the anzacs and so it sits very neatly alongside the kinds of protests we saw in the 60s against the vietnam war but it's just become totally unacceptable um for those things so you know it just gets back to that we need to understand our history as activists um in order to kind of like be ahead of the game because at the moment really the white institutions are ahead of the game
0: and it feels that way, it does feel that way and I
1: think the most that anyone going into those institutions could hope to achieve is like some incursions a bit like gorillas coming down from (laughs) the mountains, you make an incursion and then you get out again, <laughs> you and', that's, and go that's, back and hide in the cave and for that's a
0: few the days. pattern right, like I think that you know just if we want to be honest about these experiences of of people of colour and Indigenous people who've worked in the, in mainstream media, that is the pattern, right? You do it, you work there, and then you just have to, like, leave for some respite because it's such an overwhelming experience and then maybe you'll go back and find another spot or maybe you work in the academy, like, at a university or whatever. But that really is a a common story. It's not like it's a really yeah. common story and it's it's yeah. one of those things that you know we definitely have to be real about what i see is a reimagining of what all of this will look like and a like a moment for truth telling and understanding of like the history of where we're at how did we get here um what was it like in the past and how can we build um, not necessarily what we had in the past, but how can we build something that makes sense within the context that we're in? Um, as you said, the, the goalposts are, are ever-changing, are ever-shifting, and we have to kind of be cognizant of that and, and really work to those goals that we create within the context that we're in.
1: Yeah, and, you know, thank... Allah, God, Buddha, whoever you kind of follow, that we have got community radio Absolutely. because it is a place where you know, despite the fact that it is dominated and most of the decision makers you know are um white the at least it's a, a there are spaces within that where you can truly be yourself 100%. and not just be yourself, but I also think, you know, both you and I share an experience in different generations, which is, you know, it was through community radio that I um, really started to become close and learn about Indigenous politics mm-hmm. in this country. And I'm not sure that that would have happened um, with the arm's length journalist relationship from the ABC. It was at Skid Row and Radio Redfin that I really sort of, you know, cut my political teeth and weren't just about Indigenous people but a lot about myself and, you know, my role in this country. And, you know, those sorts of experiences aren't available in any other media. I think that is really important, just the bumping into other people in the corridor that you Absolutely. would not necessarily meet. Yep. And the conversations that happen there are really, really Important, and so you know, I don't know. Is Triple R still doing its radiothon? Are you still in the middle of radio? We're kind is of it
0: finished. Well, radiothon is technically finished, but we've still got it until the thirtieth of September. So there are a bunch of people actually subscribing right now. There are a few people yeah, who I are love- loving this conversation, really- Nicola. There are people who've said that they're really enjoying this chat with you and have um, renewed their subscription. So that's really nice.
1: Yeah. I really, I really, really believe that, you know, like we have to kind of get behind community radio and we have to support it because I actually think its role is going to become much more important. It always has been Mm -hmm. important in this diversity conversation. It's just never recognized. It's not recognized that people like Waleed Ali started on Channel 31 in Melbourne. Absolutely.
0: And 3CR. Yeah.
1: And 3CR. Yeah. Yeah. It's not Patricia Cavellas, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's just not recognised the contribution that community radio makes to public um, to public broadcasting in this country especially. Um, it's usually the first opportunity a person of colour or an Indigenous person has to use media and to learn about it. And that's, that's really important. But also I just think we we need to actually start to embrace new roles too, that if the ABC and SBS aren't going to take risks because they're scared that government funding's going to be cut, then, you know, community radio is where it's got to happen, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: community broadcasting, television as well. And, you know, the only way that's going to happen is through independent funding. You know, it's about... Everyone out there that's listening right now, just giving their $10 or $20. I know times are really tough. Yeah. I'm feeling it too. You know, but it is just about that moving it away from all the pressures of big business and government and actually having some really strong independent voice that speaks back um, at a national level as well as at you know, a
0: local level. Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's absolutely right. And that's always kind of where my heart is. And you know that my heart's always with community radio, always has been, always with will be. And it is, you know, only on community radio that you can jump on air and have these kind of, you know, complex, nuanced, critical conversations about these, you know, media justice. Nicola, it is always such a joy to chat with you. I always learn so much. I know you're mid PhD and have so much to do but thank you so much for taking the time
1: thank you and don't forget to put your money in the box for triple r and community radio stations all around the country thanks nicola take care
0: this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Birds is a Northern Territory-raised rapper based here in Melbourne, which means he's in hard lockdown and musicians in hard lockdown are <laughs> having a bit of a rough trot of it. Birds, how you doing? Hey, yeah, I'm good.
2: Thanks for having me. It's
0: good to have you on. You've dropped this single, you're living life, but how are you doing in the midst of all of the kind of quiet chaos that we're dealing with currently?
2: Yeah, yeah I think, um, I guess much like most people, it's kind of just the uncertainty and feels like things change all the time, so you're kind of in constant limbo. But, you know, having said that, I think I'm I'm pretty lucky and, you know, fortunate that yeah, we're doing all right, you know. Um so, yeah, we're lucky, I think in the scheme
0: of things. I mean, you're dropping singles. So, you yeah, know, yeah, doing yeah. doing fantastic. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. We that's love one it. Thing it's been good. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing it's been good for.
0: It is. Um, You can kind of sit and work on music. I spoke to Briggs a couple of weeks ago, and he was like, look, it's actually been, you know, not to say that it's great, but, like, I've been able to, you know, focus on certain things that I've, you know, been unable to focus on directly in the past, so I'm not too mad at it. So I love the general positive vibes that are coming out of this lockdown.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. No, likewise, I think I'm the same. Like, again, I'm very fortunate to, like, have... I guess resources to where Mm. I can like, I can record at home and, you know, and sort of also they get on top of like a lot of things of just preparing for the next record and in terms of, you know, just sourcing resources and funding and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah.
0: There's a bit of, yeah, downtime. I guess the, the scary part of it is that we don't know when it's over. Like, it's that's probably the. The point that's a bit like, oh, so we can do this, and I've been doing this. If you just let me know when it'll be done, then I can work towards (laughs) a (laughs) date.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: So before we talk about this single, talk to me about what you're working on at the moment. So you're working on an um, an album.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I'm working on my um, my second album at the moment. Probably been like writing um, for the good part of um, the last year and working closely with Trials, um, who also really, uh, produced the, the latest single. Um, and, yeah, just just working away and just been writing, and we're starting to sort of get to a point now where we're kind of collating songs that, um, yeah, that, that we really enjoy and we think are special. So we're trying to, like, just fine-tune everything and mm. still not in a rush, though, you know, just flattening just <laughs> along.
0: I mean, like we said, there's really no, there's no timeline yeah, no. or deadline at this point. It's not like you have to go on tour it's not or like something. I've got anywhere to go? Yeah. <laughs> In terms of your process, do you just make a bunch of songs and then decide what what um, is gonna make it to the album, or is it thematic? Or you know, how long have you been working on it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty much just most of the time I just like. Um, I get into the zone of writing and I try and write as much as possible and uh, I think for me, like putting a name on things early or having like some sort of deadline, it can, it puts a lot of unnecessary unnecessary pressure, Mm. I think. Um, and It sort of takes away from my creativity, so I like to just be pretty spontaneous and just like, just write as much as I can and um, it's been, yeah, like I've been doing that for about a year now with Trials and um, he's executive producing the project. So um, just really getting in the zone with him and, and with his beats and we're sort of at the point now where I'm starting to, I guess, look at all these songs that I've written um, and sort of really narrow it down in terms of, like, what sounds good next to what. and mm. And that, for me, kind of builds... I think it's naturally building a theme and a sound, which I think is really cool,
0: yeah. Yeah, and I guess oftentimes with, you know, musicians, you're thinking about certain things, whether the theme is already written out before you start working, which is probably rare, but you're you're making the music in the end and therefore there is going to be some sort of thematic flow regardless because it's you who's doing it.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 100%. I think um this time around too just working with trials like working with the one producer yeah. is like really helped that as well. So it's it's going to be even I guess even more evident that it's like this this sol- one sort of solid theme and 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 sound, yeah. It's
0: very exciting. I just played a couple of new singles from some artists like based here in Melbourne and in Sydney and people are really dropping stuff. People are dropping singles, EPs, albums, the music. I think at the very beginning of this isolation, there was a bit of like a quiet hum and I think people were just dealing with it artists musicians just as everyone else was dealing with the fact that we were in the midst of a pandemic and now people are kind of coming out of that and making some really amazing new stuff that you know is and releasing some new stuff and not being too scared to do that just because there isn't like a you know possibly a tour an upcoming tour or whatever just releasing it for it to be played on the radio for people to listen to it um for people to buy it for people to enjoy it it's like I think we're in a nice spot right now
2: yeah no totally I agree (laughs) I was actually I was actually talking to Briggs the other day and we were just quietly saying how we're enjoying not having to tour and travel (laughs) and And just sort of like being able to focus on creating and it's it's a nice place to be and I think for me you know, it, it's always been the case, but especially this year, I think it's really highlighted how grateful I am for music and to mm-hmm. be an artist and to have that avenue to express myself because I think otherwise I'd be going mad. Yeah. You know, like, especially with lockdown, but then with everything else that mm-hmm. happened on top of that and how I feel like everything's kind of intensified a level... Um, You know, because there's been a lot of crazy things happening in in the space of, like, the last eight eight months or however long it's been, yeah.
0: Absolutely. It is. Everything feels heightened. Like, here, um, overseas, of course, but, you know, here as well, things are just feeling a little bit more heightened. There's been lots of kind of stuff going on that eats at you, the type of stuff that keeps you up at night. I'm grateful to you musicians too because this state-mandated one-hour walk a day, all I do is listen to music <laughs> and having yeah, some yeah. new stuff in the rotation is very, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, tell me about this new single.
2: Yeah, so this song's called Bagulam Bagan," which is bachelor for um, fighting boomerang. And um, features my cousin uh, and bachelor songman Fred Leone. And it was written for the Looky, Looky, Here Comes Cookie documentary, uh, which was released um, just recently and premiered at MIFF and and NITV. It's still streaming, I think, online. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, it was just... I was approached at the top of the year um, to be a part of the documentary and... You know, to um, join um, a bunch of like artists that I really admire and love, and um, it was a great opportunity to share our story um, and add to songlines and and to tell our story as well as uh, I guess com- comment on the you know on Australian history and and our version and our voice that I think often gets silenced. Mm. Um well I know often get silenced and, and you know oppressed against so um this was a really I think powerful way to to share our story and um my song and Fred's song especially is um it's it's inspired by the story of Butchula people seeing uh Captain Cook sail past Garing sail past um Fraser Island um yeah and it's from a perspective of a young Butchula warrior um, who Stephen McGregor, the director of the documentary, asked me to sort of write from that perspective and to really try and tap into the mindset of, you know, a young warrior kind of uh, preparing for invasion and, and, and for war. Yeah, so that's pretty much it in a nutshell.
0: It is such a powerful song. Like I, I hate to describe songs as like as that, you know, a big powerful song or a song that means so much or a really meaningful song. But listening to this and listening to it a few times in a row and then in different contexts, um, it is a really powerful fo- song. And it is an ex- it's quite a beautifully creative song, but it's also quite explicit, right? So in yeah. the sense that you know, this warrior knows you know <laughs> where they're at, how they feel, what they're going to do, what their general you know, and that is, like yeah. you said, a history, a story, a perspective that is rarely shown.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think that part of it for me was probably um, the most challenging, I guess, because writing from a perspective that, I guess, you know, it's informed, it's it's, it's inspired by my heritage, of mm. being butchler and the stories that I've heard and also inspired by my my family and my relationship uh, with my cousin, Fred, and he actually wrote his part in Butchler. Um That's a song that he wrote a few years ago and that he um, sings and, and does the dance for as well as part of the Butchler, uh, song, uh dance group and songmen. And so that's kind of how it all started. He showed me... I told him about the project and then he showed me that and I thought, oh, this is perfect. Can you try and sing it over this beat? And he did that and it was within, I think, 20 minutes he sent back just a voice memo of him singing over the beat and it was was just as powerful as what you hear now and as crazy as it sounds like for just a voice memo to really um, hit home and really cut through like that. I just knew straight away it was going to be a special moment, um, so yeah.
0: It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful song, it's a really powerful song, and I'm going to play it in just a moment, but I want you to tell me a little bit about Looky, Looky, Here Comes Cookie before I play the track and let you go.
2: Yeah, sure. um, so yeah, it's a documentary, um, narrated by Stephen Oliver and uh, directed by Stephen McGregor, um, and the... Uh, all of the music that you hear in it is uh, executive produced and scored by uh, Trials from AB Original. And essentially it's a, um, telling the story of, uh, you know, Captain Cook's arrival and um, first contact mm-hmm. with Indigenous people and highlighting and, and, and really trying to highlight the um, Indigenous perspective that's, um you know... Often silenced and left out of the, the dominant narratives, um, and I think all artists do an amazing job at um, sharing different perspectives. And um, my song, in particular, I guess, is very much from um, challenging the, the dominant narrative mm. that there was no resistance, um, and it, and this song is like very much inspired by the continuing resistance from. Yeah, indigenous
0: activists today. Amazing. It is such a powerful song, like I said, absolutely beautiful. You've got an album coming out. I'm not going to ask you for dates or anything like that because I know that we're really not at that time frame at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm really looking forward to it and I'm really excited to play this track on the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show and doing all this awesome work. I'm looking forward to the album. Thanks, Birds. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Rap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.